Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell, and this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. With that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 31st, 2022. So Mike, one of the things I wanted to start with was an article that um, was on Hacker News and it was called Twilio reveals another breach from the same hackers behind the August or yeah, the August attack. Um, and you know, the interesting thing here is, and there wasn't a lot of technical detail, but it's more a strategy kind of piece, right? Okay. Um, it's, it's something that, you know, as security people are faced with, Hey, attackers hit you. How do you know they're out of your environment or how do you know you won't get hit again? Um, you know, this was common ransomware was kind of running wild originally when people would be like oh you pay the ransom they're just going to hit you again because they already have those ties that kind of fear um and i think this kind of ties to kind of why threat hunting is an important topic for these type of things because there's one thing that you should learn from every breach when you investigate you do your instant response you collect whatever information whatever the actor or whoever was on your network what they were doing and if you're able to create effective hunts you hopefully can root out any other place in the network that you didn't find. So you can make sure you're, you're more holistic across your network. Um, and then two, you know, it gives you a place to where if you were to then do reoccurring hunts on the same behavior for a, you know, a period of time after the breach, um, you hopefully will root out any other activity that may show up, you know, say you kicked them out, but they were able to get in the same way you didn't see before you'll at least know that they've landed again and to then do more in your incident response. Um, and, you know, you scrutinize the systems that they touched before, especially if you don't rebuild them. And in this case, there was a lot of credential access or, you know, through social engineering and through SMS kind of trickery. Um, so, you know, I thought that was good. Now, the nice thing was, is the company um, did adopt a more robust two-factor um, solution instead of sure. relying just on SMS stuff. But uh, I don't know what your takeaways were when you kind of saw this as a headline. Yeah, so it's interesting, the the topic around reinfection, if we can call it that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it Like to your point, it didn't go into too many technical details. I would imagine, so the, this was a named hacking group. Um, it looks like Octopus and Scatterswine. And so we can assume that they have a baked set of infection change or TTPs behaviors that they use to get access. And they they did call out the phone numbers, the fake spoofs being the SMS and login pages to get credential harvesting type activities. But um, I, I would assume to your point, it's probably not a reinfection. It's probably something that was lingering in the environment that they didn't catch. And so we always talk about proactive threat hunting, going to find the bad behaviors in an environment that you don't already know about. But I think there's a process, and I know a lot of different teams, digital forensics, incident response teams, it's more of a reactive hunt, right? So you know something's in the environment, now let's go hunt down those behaviors, those TTPs, those artifacts, um, to find if that organization, you know, so-called landed and expanded. 
right? And so I would assume that this was probably the case. They probably did not get reinfected again, I would hope, right? Um, you would hope they would right. clean up some of those those points of entry. Um, and it looks like they try to mitigate this with additional 2.2 factor, um, additional layers of control for the VPN, um, security training, social engineering. It, I don't know how many users this organization has, but as you start to grow and get in the thousands, you mean yeah. you're gonna have you know, a weak link somewhere in that chain. So um, I think this really does speak to, to your point the importance of not only proactive threat hunting, but reactive threat hunting as well. Um, taking the same mindset methodology, but looking for a known entity in your environment and not the indicators of compromise, but kind of the behaviors and the things that are anomalous to what should have been there. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, so I don't know, you, you wanna take the next one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next one is uh, Bleeping Computer. Um, and this is centered around an open source tool that scans AWS private buckets, or excuse me, public buckets for secrets. Um, and so, you know, with, you know, developing this code, you have, uh, you know, a whole topic around dev app security, DevSec. There has been incidents where people will publish their private keys in S3. Um, a lot of times it's in configuration files for Maybe it's Lambda or functions that they're running. Um, it could be just, you know, backing up a whole folder in S3 or a process in S3. Um, this happens a lot in GitHub as well. Um, we've seen people post, uh, especially if you're writing Python scripts or, you know, hard coding data into your functions, um, you'll end up exposing a lot of passwords. And so this looks like a crawler for S3 buckets. It's actually utilizing another open source tool, um, if I can get the name of it here, uh, Triple Hog. Um, and so that actually looks at a variety of different tools like GitHub, GitLab, S3 buckets to find private keys. This is just built around a little bit more of a process where they're doing the scanning and then potentially pushing the results up to a sim. Um, but there's, a, there's kind of a give and take, uh, a good and a bad double-edged sword with releasing these type of tools where now, anybody has this capability to go scan, you know, public keys, right? So it, there's a little bit of exposure here, a little bit of a learning and education piece to this, but um, it's definitely important and it's definitely uh, a good point to try to educate anybody using, you know, these public type entities to make sure that they're scrubbing the keys from anything they push. Right. Yeah, yeah when I saw this, yeah, when I saw this, you know, I, you know, the first thing that you know popped in my head was, you know, that's the typical cloud breach scenario is either poor, you know, configuration or poor key management, you know. Yeah, um, and then you mentioned the GitHub thing, and I remember that was a really popular thing back when people were using um, AWS specifically a lot more, where they were just writing things and leaving keys in the code um, on GitHub. Yeah. Uh, so. So that was, uh, you know, kind of stood out. I was like, oh, so this is still kind of a thing, but it's probably a different mm -hmm. flavor of the same thing, right? Um, but I really liked how the process that was described in this was kind of a defensive point of, hey, let's use these types of tools to then bring visibility for things we need to care about. Um, and, you know, it, it's funny because as a, you know, working in security for many, many years, and one of the things you learn about is recon and 
anytime you're like, hey, what are we going to do about recon? Everyone's like, I mean, what are we going to do? We're not going to block everything. We're going to we're going to waste time and resources if we you know bother with it. And it's true because in some instances you put servers that are publicly exposed. Um, they're going to be touched by so many different things performing reconnaissance in many different ways, but it's expected. You, that's intentional, yep. right? Yep. Um, I thought it was kind of an interesting concept to then take, well, what about the information you share that you're not intending to share? Like, how do you identify that? And it's almost like, uh, I was thinking like it's a, a similar process to hunting in, in your own network or more, you know, uh, Intel gathering associated with like counter Intel hunting. It's kind of what I was thinking in my head. Right, yeah, where yeah. maybe it makes sense to sit there and say, hey, if I were to use some of these tools, especially the open source recon type tools that are meant for gathering information, not necessarily looking for vulnerabilities and things like that. Sure. Absolutely. Just to see where you have specific data existing. Um, you know, for instance, if you know you've got a bunch of email, real email addresses exposed, maybe those are areas where you pay more attention to when it comes to phishing, because now they're, you know, things that people might jump on um, for those aspects. So, Absolutely. you know, something. That I thought was a an interesting method when they you know forwarded things to the sim. Maybe the, we could do more with trying to identify what information you know if I was a company that I have exposed and how do I have some iterations of discovering that and then deciding what to do with it. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Like so, this is a great tool. We talked about Sheridan in the past. We've talked about gray noise. Um, it again, it's really good just to understand your your landscape and your exposure to your point. Um, yeah, that's a great point. I definitely use this, put this in your tool belt. Um, this should be something that you do on a monthly cadence potentially, right? Um, just to see what your exposures are. I mean, it's it's great to understand that environment. So uh, we can move on, next one. Yeah, so this is something I also saw from Hacker News. I always get really excited when I can say, you know, something that's, uncover a stealthy technique or something. So the, it was researchers uncover stealthy techniques used by crane fly espionage hackers. Um, and this one was really interesting to me. Um, one, not so much they have new backdoors. So they had a new backdoor that was called like Danfuan, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, it's written in C sharp. But they also used it, that in combination with the ReGeorge web shell. I'm guessing I'm pronouncing that correctly too. Yeah. Right, like it's it's one of those things where like they don't make it easy to pronounce, but I'm probably doing okay. Um, and that web shell, I was looking into that. I mean, it's been used by actors in the Middle East, actors in Russia, and, and even some crimeware it sounded like in general. So you know, kind of a popular reverse uh, web shell. Um, but the interesting thing about why this was stealthy it had nothing to do with the malware itself. It was more the targeting. You know, it seemed like everything that was being targeted was, you know, something like network equipment or load balancers, places where you don't have that endpoint visibility sometimes, or even the protections in place. Um, and I think that's kind of a, an interesting um, place because, you know, what, what do defenders do to basically defend those devices? And this is where I like to think of like a, a profiling approach, right? If you can't collect the right logs that you need, or you can't use the same tool sets, Sometimes it's good to just proactively like, hey, let's look at firmwares. Let's look at running processes, you know, those snapshots in time um, that you can gather on pretty much most systems. You know, there's there's different ways to determine those things. And then you just do a compare and contrast on a daily basis and look for net new. Um, and in some cases, I think that would help in this instance. 
um, depending on how things are run. Like we didn't have samples of this nor the infrastructure to, to look into this right. specifically. Um, but you know, it, the other thing that I, I thought was, um, I thought was even more interesting was the dwell time. You know, mm -hmm. this was a, a campaign they mentioned at eight month, 18 month dwell time with no data being exfilled. So there really was a point on sitting there and waiting and, and persisting, which is kind of coincides with their target selection too, right? They, they targeted infrastructure they knew likely wouldn't be discovered. They want to sit there for really long. And then it even went further to describe how it would, the targeting was more closely related to people with corporate transactions. Um, yeah. And then it kind of made me think of like, well, it sounds like one of those lay and wait supply chain type things. Like, hey, sure. they're looking for this, like the, the people getting hit with this aren't the intended targets. They're looking for who these people might do business with that might be intended targets to leverage to get in. That's, that's my... It, whatever spider sense you want to call it makes me think about this type of of attack right like lay in wait look for who's connected to who and then how can i leverage that when the right thing comes up um because if they're not exfilling data it's it's a large amounts of data it's likely not a um the intended target you know it's the ancillary target essentially so sure. so yeah that was kind of the interesting points i, I found there so i don't know what you um, thought yeah, no, I think it's very interesting on the what they chose to attack. To your point around the the point the back doors on network appliance tools, and you talk about that long dwell time. Typically, these tools aren't being updated in a monthly fashion. So I, I feel like they didn't risk doing like a firmware update or updating the BIOS or something on a load balancer access point. Um, or any type of those networking tools would have caused them to lose that backdoor. So you can kind of sit there a little bit longer. 18 months seems, it's a very long time. Um, yeah. But again, to this article's point, uh, you typically won't throw EDR tools on a load balancer or a wireless right. access point, right? Um, you, I don't know if they were actively connecting to that backdoor um, or they just kind of left that, that access open. But again, from an anomalous hunting perspective, your wireless access point should not be reaching out to, you know, external addresses for regular updates. Maybe some NTP time checking, um, but not typically going out and and connecting to anything on a regular, consistent basis, especially over 18 months. Um, if it wasn't connecting to that the previous 18 months, right? So there's some anomalous yes. understanding you should probably have for those tools. Um, you get a point you, on you that. You made me think of something, um, and that is. Uh, something to always take note of, especially if you're using like vendor-based tools for this, not like you're loading some sort of software onto like your own Linux box to run these types of capabilities. And this really applies more to network equipment, right? Usually don't build your own router and then install the software you need, right? Um, and that is pay attention to your vendors, um, user agents that they use. They usually call back home, you know, to check for updates, yep. check for things like that but they often have their own fingerprint of their own user agent when they connect home. So when you see network connections with user agents that aren't consistent with those devices, once you've profiled them, it's a dead giveaway from a network visibility perspective, right? That I think yeah. it'd be easy to t pay attention to, so. And then from a point of infection perspective, I would imagine that they were getting access to these tools based on maybe some sort of critical vulnerability and those capabilities of those tools. Otherwise, they would have to pivot 
from an internal infection over to those tools to install a backdoor. And I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know if the article mentioned how they were gaining. Yeah, they didn't touch access, on right? the initial access piece, but yeah, you know, it'd right. be interesting to see how they got to those specific devices. Right. Because again, typically your wireless access point controllers and load balancers are on segmented networks, right? So they would yes, have had a management network pivoting going to those boxes or that was their initial access. But again, I also shouldn't be able to pivot from my load balancer to my production environment, right? Like there should be some controls in place for that. So I think there's some things you can do from an engineering standpoint to, to mitigate at least your, um, the visibility that these hack, or hackers or activists or actors have in your environment. So all things, that's why, right. you know, we always talk about from a hunting perspective and engineering perspective, those teams really need to be on the same page um, to be able to protect against these type of events. So. Yeah, especially like that's something that you should definitely have a good understanding of your infrastructure for visibility concerns because mm -hmm. like we always we preach you know visibility you can't hunt what you can't see type you know mantra and this is a prime example of where you could have blind spots and you should be looking to see what you at least can see for these types of things or infrastructure right yep so. absolutely absolutely all right so moving on yeah all right cool so we have another bleeping computer article um this is the azov ransomware data wiper um but the, the kind of the call on this article that it was framing researchers and bleeping computer. So typically ransomware will drop some sort of text file with instructions on how to decrypt, how to pay, um, and then to take credit, right? And so what was interesting is that this group tied this to security researchers and bleeping computer themselves. Um, and so bleeping computer, uh, they were getting a bunch of emails asking how to decrypt. Of course, they had no idea what, what these people were talking about. And I think it tied back to this ransomware. Um, and they actually ended up calling it, it's not really ransomware at this point. It's just a data wiper because there was actually no way to contact the real threat actors to pay the ransomware. Um, and so just from a high level, looking at this is really interesting that I don't know if it's something missed in their process or um it's just something to call out and try to not technically ddos bleeping computer but just to pull them away from doing additional research or uh just trying to mess with them right um but there was really no way to pay for the the uh the ransom so um it seems like these actors were were doing this in kind of an activist type of approach rather than trying to make money on on this campaign so from a technical perspective i know Scott, you had a little bit to talk through with with the actual details of the loaders and the ransomware. Yeah, I mean, like the biggest thing that stood out um, was really like the, the the call out of the points of persistence, because like you said, there was really just a data wiper perspective. So like mm -hmm. this detonates, you're pretty much like don't expect to get your data back. Um, and I got some Intel tie-ins that I think are really interesting and, you know, makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist too when I cover that. So I'll try to hold off the crazy after I talk about the uh, technical piece. But <laughs> one of the things that um, it's, it's one of the most common persistence traits, I think, that we all see um, with majority of malware, and that is the auto run or the ASAP registry key modifications. Um, they run, you know, a run key, right? for a point of persistence for whatever the malware is for whatever reason. Um, 
And so something that, you know, if you're not familiar with our Hunter platform, you know, if you go to our, you know, cyborgsecurity.com, uh, register for Hunter, the top right, one of the free packages is this. And what I like about our package, obviously it covers what they do, but, you know, we constantly are updating with additional run keys we discover that other malwares try to run. So we actually have 11 run key locations. Um, and that includes the 64-bit versus 32-bit run keys. A lot of people forget about the 32-bit side of things. Um, and then we also have seven values we exclude um, from those run keys that we know are, are normal activities. So uh, I think it's a really good holistic, any type of run key type of hunt um, to consider. Um, but from an Intel side, so there's a couple of things I kind of pull together from historical things, right? Um, and that is the, the effort that they put on Ukraine already, you know, makes alarm bells go off right they're trying to act like ukrainians are retaliating for lack of support in the war effort specifically yep. around crimea and it's like okay right that's exactly what you'd want to do if you wanted to get help right is to start you know impacting people and it's not like you're impacting the people that can do anything you're just impacting people in general um and every large nascent state including our own you know in the united states they have a psyops and I've talked before with Russian campaigns where they control physical type of mobility type things tied to their cyber operations to do really good phishing and social engineering. Well, so PSYOPs is the way to kind of control how people think, right? Yeah. Influence. Um, there's the Internet Research Institute in Russia outside of St. Petersburg area. Um, that, that's what they do is just troll people, right? Um, and this just sounds like a really interesting technique to now merge your cyber operations with your psyops stuff. Um, because one of the things they, they mentioned too is the wiper takes the name of the Ukrainian Azov regiment, which is a controversial military force that was allegedly associated with the neo-Nazi ideology, um, which kind of goes back to Russia's stances on the war. Um, and then second, they're targeting media outlets and information outlets. That's kind of a fascist move, right? So yeah. bleeping computer, malware hunting team, the researcher that wrote the article specifically, and then the two other researchers. I mean, these are people that are constantly putting out information that's happening with the cyber capabilities Russia is utilizing against Ukraine, you know, consistently. So obviously it was kind of a backlash, right? Of like, hey, you're, you're constantly saying all these bad things and they're trying to control the message. And then something about misinformation campaigns, which I think is very interesting tied to ransomware, and in this case is a data wiper though, um, is misinformation campaigns are successful um, when not based on what sources the information comes from, but based on the volume. Mm -hmm. So how you influence a large number of people is have a large number of people talk about it because it seems like the more people talk about it, the more it has to be true, that, that kind of ideology. Um, and so you start hitting people with ransomware or a data wiper and people are getting mad and they have all this information that's included like, oh, well, they say it's Ukrainian, they say it's this, this, that, and other. Well, now you're spreading information from a source that is not you. And it's a very creative way to almost do that. I mean, like I, I feel like Russia is very good with the Cold War techniques and it feels very much like that. So like I said, no factual information other than tying things together, but that's kind of how <laughs> I see this playing out, right? Uh no, you brought up a lot of really good points on the misinformation um, and the psyops piece, but where it gets interesting with how big the internet is, it's hard to attribute this and, and do any type of attribution to Russia. This could just be 
a couple of people doing this on their own, uh, tying it back to the war effort, um, you know, Russian supporters or whatever that may be, right? right. This could be Americans doing this, right? Like, it, it, unless we really dive into the the process, you, it's hard to do any type of real attribution on these type of events, right? Because this doesn't seem very, um, trying to use the right word here, it, sophisticated in its approach, right? Um, I yeah. think they even the missed thing, the payment method for the ransomware. So, well, <laughs> so. the, that's the other thing that was interesting is so NotPetya. Historically, Russia did the NotPetya attack. Yep. It was supposed to be ransomware that hit everything. Well, they encrypted everything with no way to recover the data and staged it as ransomware, and it wasn't ransomware. Um, so similar technique here where they weren't really trying to help people recover anything. It was just a blast of, hey, we're encrypting everything, and there is no yep. key. Um, so yeah, like I said, I got, it sounds, I, I, it makes, you know, this is the idea of why it's really hard to talk about these things because it makes me sound crazy. Right. Um, <laughs> but these are just historical, historical facts that sure. are kind of, you know, potential ties. And this is kind of why threat intelligence exists as a thing. Like how can you connect the red lines to stitch and make the big picture? And is it credible? So, yeah, yep. Yep. absolutely. Um, and that's just putting your intelligence hat on and, you know, tying things together like you typically have to do from a hunter's mindset methodology yeah. so i mean it, yeah. it makes sense um all right next one so yeah the um this one was of info security magazine um and it's ransomware is being used as a precursor to physical war um i thought this was interesting uh on a few aspects obviously with cyber being what it is today and how technology is so integrated um and we know we have cyber forces i mean that's been very very clear uh not really a surprise right there is um a reason why people are going to be leveraging ransomware and we see it with the war with ukraine and russia there was a bunch of different cyber operations and a lot of ransomware and data wipers happening in conjunction with the war so the the thing that you know what I what kind of perks me up when I look at this is okay. So when you start looking at what are threats to you, you kind of figure out where where do I sit as a company? Like what part of critical infrastructure? Because you know war efforts usually target critical infrastructure and other types of things um, that are associated with that. So you know then you kind of have to start thinking about where are your real threats and how you're going to prepare for those. Because you know there's more likely that ransomware might hit you from a not just a standard ransomware, like the scale of the ransomware attack might be slightly different. So it's kind of like gets you thinking about the right threats and the right planning cycles um, for some of those things and pay more attention to the geopolitical stuff. I think is important. That should always be part of the Intel side of the house. Um, and then also, you know, how do you tie to anything critical outside your space? So a lot of times, um, you know, when I work in energy, it was always like, well, do we provide power to any military bases or, any major supply, you know, sources for water or whatever else, so that we might not be an intended target, but other things might, and we could be leveraged for that kind of thing. Um, That's a good point. I never thought out. about the. Uh, I always kind of think of the end user for power companies, but right. I mean, power other things, right? So that's a good point there. Yeah. And then the other thing is, you know, and this goes back to the whole sci-hops thing, right? There's, you can also be an ancillary target of like, say, hey. In war, they're always trying to control public opinion, right? You, you never want um, your own people to not support your own war, right? 
So sometimes there could be different cyber things that can affect services that people really care about or are really highly visible that might irritate, you know, the, the populace and then make them turn on the people, you know, they lose a lot of support in the war. Usually sports, wars don't go well. Um, and then there's some a, a interesting thing in the article. So I pulled up the article and there was this ransomware vulnerabilities funnel. And I really, really liked the graphic they pulled in there. Um, and it was, uh, so you actually had to go to the report. There were, there was a, a report, report link in there. And the graphic is a funnel and it basically starts in the small where it says like the trending active exploits because they're making a call out to like how many vulnerabilities are being utilized by ransomware today. And then they do, the funnel grows bigger to the CISA, like the, the key exploit, exploited vulnerabilities. You know, they keep track of those. I think we talked about that last time. And then the next funnel was even bigger and it's like tied to ransomware. Um, and it's like kind of showing how, hey, here's what, you know, things are being exploited actively. Here's things that are being tracked that are a little bit bigger um, that have been exploited. And then here's ones associated with ransomware specifically. So it seems like these ransomware authors are starting to incorporate more automated exploitation as part of the code. So one of the things I would, I didn't take enough time to dig into this report specifically, but it might be beneficial to look at what are the types of vulnerabilities are ransomware really interested in, right? Sure. Are there spe specific tools or targets so that you know, hey, if there's a vulnerability that comes out or something I need to patch, maybe I should prioritize those a little higher because I expect them to be sought, you know, stronger. Or, you know, are there certain techniques the ransomware is more focused on and when it comes to vulnerabilities, like they need remote code execution versus something else or initial access or elevation is more important. So they focus on those vulnerabilities to give you kind of an idea of like, OK, I have a selection of things I need to prioritize higher. And I also have the type of vulnerabilities I need to think about more um, from a strategy perspective. So I thought it was a great funnel to kind of like put that on its head. And then the last little anecdote I want to add when we talk about cyber combined with um, physical kinetic operations um you know one of the national guard groups i worked with they got to do a fun exercise and i think it was put on by a, a college university but they basically were able to say play out trying to do cyber coinciding with like special forces right like the mm -hmm. whole hey, we're going to put a, guys on the ground and we're going to try to work together and one of the things they did you know was like kill lights before breaching a room or having drones, you know, like the RC drones that create extra eyes on whatever and try to work together in a live operation and as, as opposed to this distant one where you can ransomware to create disruption and then do something separate. It was interesting to see that merger of that kind of force. I mean, it was that, you know, I don't know how true that is as, as live, but it was a cool exercise to think about. You know, it's like that uh, spy you always, games. You always see it on TV, though, right? Like, there's a yeah, guy. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, right. Access is open. Blah 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 blah. And they're like, Doom. yeah, I unlocked this door. I killed these lights. You know, yeah, I can yeah. I can reroute the power. You know, whatever it is, yeah. right? Um, but it was kind of a cool concept. And I I I guess with them tying this here, you know, maybe that's more of a a real thing. You know, or could be a more of a real thing in the future too. So. Yeah, I mean, I I got a couple points on this one. I think you're you're talking about. Um, Categorizing the CVEs or the uh, the vulnerabilities based on the ability for ransomware to be the next pivot point in that uh, execution chain. I think that's really important because you've mentioned this before. Why do I care about this exploiter vulnerability? Like, what can I actually do with this exploiter vulnerability? Right? Do I get remote execution or do I just get do I get shell? Right? Or am I dropped into uh, a sandboxed 
kind of like uh, environment within that that software where I can't break out, right? I think all of that's right. very important to understand um, because there probably is there are is, is like a class of CVEs that give you the next step would be ransomware or eventually ransomware because I have that that, that to get to that point. So I think that'd be really interesting to to categorize from a CVE perspective and then. As ransomware as a tool, I think there's a lot of things it does, and we talked about tabletops exercises on our podcast last week. Um, ransomware is a very different response than DDoS, than uh, you know another type of cyber attack on an entity. And so with ransomware, I think it does pull a lot of people in a very specific direction, um, and it could be used to disrupt a lot more. Uh, at least from an internal environment perspective than let's say a DDoS or something, right? So if I ransom an energy company and I basically lock up your controls, I mean, that's gonna that's gonna cause a lot of issues internally, right? Outside of me just DDoSing some outside service or something like that. Um, and then again, another point that you made is, at least within war, you know, there are targets that could cause a lot of, um, uh, a change in trust in those users, like financial, right? Banking, mm -hmm. uh, water, right? Like there's a lot of targets that could, like hard targets that could be used from a cyber perspective that could cause a lot of issues um, from a from a cyber um, type approach. But, you know, that is yeah, I mean, that's the way war is going, right? Uh, I think right. there's a lot of, you know, it's, it's less and less kinetic. Um, but I think you also got to consider the uh, insurance complications there. Because I remember, I think it was not Petya, where there was an insurance company that said that they don't insure for active wars. Well, can you imagine getting hit with ransomware and insurance is part of your risk management? And then you can't use it because they can prove there's some sort of conflict? Like, yeah, I mean, uh, cyber insurance in itself is very interesting, right? Um, I right. think there's like a a hundred plus increase in um, claims for cyber insurance over the past couple of years, I would imagine that those contracts are, are very specific to your point of mm -hmm. nation state actors or active war. Um, and again, the attribution is very hard. To yeah, determine. that's the toughest part. Yeah, that was, that was exactly that country that did this to me, right? So they have very smart lawyers that built those contracts because they don't want to pay out this money. It, it's going to get very expensive for insurance companies in the next couple of years. Um, so, but yeah, I, it's, uh, I think there's some common threads in some of these articles that we've been talking about, which is cool. Um, but we'll just see, see how this plays out over time, you know? So I think that concludes our uh, out of the woods threat hunting podcast for the the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of October 31st. So I want to thank everybody for joining and listening and ob obviously always leave reviews and feedback for us to follow up on and um, hear how, how we're doing and what you like and what yeah. you want to see more of. We'll see you all next week. Sounds good. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.